Welcome to another edition of Global Investment Leaders. Welcome all. This is Chaz Burkhart, CEO of Rosemont. And on this edition of Global Investment Leaders, I have the pleasure of hosting Jan Van Eck, the CEO of Van Eck, a roughly $90 billion multi-asset, predominantly ETF business headquartered in New York. I've actually known Jan for about 35 years. And I first met his father, John Van Eck, who founded the business in 1955, uh, and his mother. And I thought, what an interesting couple. And I wonder whether this business is going to turn out to be both commercial and sustainable. Well, I think Jan has answered that question fully. He's a very thoughtful leader and a nice guy to boot. So without further ado, my podcast with Jan Van Eck. Jan, thanks for joining me today. Uh, we haven't seen each other in a while. I don't know if it was pre-COVID, but uh, nice to be with you again. It's great to catch up, Chaz. So I'd like to start just by having you summarize, if you could, the nearly 70-year evolution from kind of a pioneering gold business to a much broader assortment of niche investment offerings and what I think of as one of the more interesting um, broad-based ETF providers in the industry? Sure. Um, well, I'm going to answer that question in two dimensions. First of all, there's an underlying investment philosophy that we kind of have brought to the business from day one. And that is that the financial markets really simply reflect the broader outside world and those major trends are economic, political, and technology. Uh, so, the, the question then is, what's missing in your portfolio? What can you take advantage of? It's really an asset class question, I would say. So my father started the business uh, by starting uh, one of the first international equity funds in 1955, thinking that Americans were overinvested in the United States. And then that business really did not grow very much. Um, and then he thought inflation was going to be a big problem and sold everything in that fund pretty much and bought gold mining shares. And, you know, gold had been linked to the U.S. dollar for the entirety, effectively, of the U.S. history for about 180 years. So to, to bet that that was going to change was a, was a big bet, but it paid off. And that fund was the best performing fund in the industry in the 70s. And that kind of made my dad's reputation. Yeah. But from, you know, from a business perspective, uh, I think especially when you're small, but you know, this is true for startups across many industries, is you have to pivot. And um, effectively, when I joined the business with my brother in the early 90s, just having a business that was a gold fund business was just not, to use your word, sustainable. And exactly. so we really began a process of trying different diversification steps, different pivots, and uh, it, it took a long time. We started our ETF business in 2006, and that's really uh, come to dominate our business now. It's 90% of assets, and we operate in Europe, Australia, here in the United States. Uh, but uh, lots of pivoting going on over that time period. It is quite an evolution, to say the least. I mean, now you're both international uh, and domestic equity, fixed income, commodities, metals, uh, digital disruption. I'll let you talk a little bit about the very wide product offering and some of the further thinking behind it. But I, I think I'd rather start a little bit with your evolution as a leader, because you know, coming back from your 
father's days in the late fifties and, and maybe the first 25 or so years, it was a relatively small niche business as we all uh, know. And today you've got about 372 people in some spots around the world. And so I'm interested in how you as CEO have grown as a leader and how you think about managing a, a, a burgeoning business like this. Well, there's, there's, again, a couple of different dimensions that I think of. Um, first of all, when you're a really small shop, right, where you're a five-person firm and you're a services operation, you should be doing what you're best at. And so when I started doing the business with my brother, he started on the investment side, um, instituting a more institutionally oriented investment process, which I would say lingers, to, you know, has lasted to this day. Um, and I got out there and I was the sales guy. And so, um, you know, you, you do what you need to uh, relative to your skill set. And I still think that I would say I try to spend the majority of my time on, you know, effectively product management. And what I mean by that is I said that we have this macro view of the world, but we don't put all our macro views into one investment vehicle like some hedge funds do. Rather, we say, listen, we think Inflation may be an issue. Maybe you should think about gold now, or we think emerging markets or whatever it might be um, should fit in your portfolio for a variety of reasons. But we really have that as a dialogue with investors. But to take it to the next step, you have to design the fund. What is it? Okay, you know, you can take a, a bland index, but especially for ETFs, there are liquidity considerations. There's a lot of different types of considerations. My, my favorite recent example is our semiconductor ETF, SMH, which is 25 stocks, very large cap, Chaz, and it's really been the place to be. So we actually bought, bought it from Merrill Lynch in 2012, and since then it's up 12 times. But it's way outperformed other semiconductors that are constructed very differently. And of course, I can give you the reverse Van Eck fund that's probably constructed not in right. the best way. But to answer your question about my role as CEO is I should be spending my time on the thing that I am best at. And that's what I think I'm best at. The second um, observation I would make is that if you're lucky to be part of a growing firm, obviously you can strengthen your team over time. So you not only you, you can add the position of cybersecurity expert or compliance expert, but as you get more assets under management, hopefully you can build that team and sometimes replace replace people to really have the best team on the field at any point in time. So that's how I, I kind of think about it. Um, I would say the last comment that I've been really blessed to be more of a business person because uh, you know, people say, oh, well, you got into ETFs early in 2006 and having that background as a business person first and not a portfolio manager. Uh, I think it was a little bit more obvious to me than, you know, maybe some active portfolio management shops that this was going to be a vehicle of choice and grow very rapidly. Well, one of the things that I've known about you, and I think you just explained in your answer, is that for a guy who said he started as a sales guy, <laughs> You're definitely one of the most business-minded um, and and overarching uh, management heads, you know, that I probably know, and I think that's a testament as well as to why Van Eck has grown and proliferated as it has. 
Let me pivot a little bit to the culture of Van Eck, which clearly has also evolved with the personnel growth and the diversification of the business. I just finished reading The Fund, which, as you may know, maybe you've read is the book on Bridgewater and Ray Dalio, which, if true, is, is a very disturbing tale of the disconnect between um, empathy and motivation and lack of turnover um, and overall what I would think of as high quality uh, human characteristics and the ability to be uber successful. How would you describe the culture at Van Eck? What are some adjectives, some thoughts that, that you've been intentional about in building the culture? Yeah, there are a couple of ingredients. I think, first of all, uh, my father approached gold as a macro from a top-down perspective, but one of his first hires was a mining geologist who could really get into the nitty-gritty of the industry. And so that's been uh, true throughout our history. If you look at our resources investment team, that we hire people not from Wall Street, uh, but from, from the industry. And that kind of engineering background is, is super important. The second is a tolerance uh, for cyclicality of the resources business. So we're kind of we're private. Um, you can you know gold shares are so volatile. They're one of the most volatile you know kind of industry sectors in the industry. So having the patience to deal with huge AUM swings. Um, is, is something that I think people appreciate here because if you have a resources team, and it's true for emerging markets a little bit as well, is they want the firm to um, not be a boom-bust firm, but to stick by the, the, the team, even though the asset class is going under a lot of stress. So I think that's something. And I think it's People say it's a family business. I, I, um, I think those are the characteristics that I would describe to uh, if you will, the longer term pact between the firm and some of the professionals that, that work here. Uh, and would so, that be, yeah. And, and would that be represented by very low unwanted turnover? We do have very low uh, turnover on the on the investment side. Yes. Very low. Well, you know, it's not it's not every firm that can both make that claim over as long a period um, and through the evolution that you have led. But I'm kind of curious how you think about your competitive place in the world, because as we chat a little bit before, you know, you are not the size or scale. I don't even know that you're really the ambition uh, of a Vanguard, a Fidelity, a Schwab, a BlackRock. But I think that there's something more specific and intentional in what you are what you've done and what you're trying to do with Vanek. Maybe you could contrast yourself to some of those giants and just talk a little bit about how you hone your competitive niche. Well, I think uh, in, in, in a word, uh, you know, sort of we've had three phases in, in my career. One is sort of mutual funds. And then we actually had a hedge fund phase where we had about $4 billion in hedge funds. And then, as, as I like to say, I became ETF guy. So, um, you know, I, I think once we saw that early growth in, the ETF, in our ETF business, uh, I had a, a wise boss who had worked at Fidelity 
who described, you know, being a CEO as driving a car and you either want to tap the brakes or you want to hit the accelerator. Um, and we obviously wanted to hit the accelerator with the ETF business because I, I knew what a tough business was and I knew what an easy business was and I wanted to take advantage while the sun was shining. I think that's really been the, the, the bulk of my strategic focus is just to build that business. We've done very selective um, acquisitions. I mentioned SMH before. We also uh, bought a, a smaller European ETF um, business to accelerate our growth there. Uh, but it's mainly been organic and it's mainly been through product design. We've had two phases of product design in our ETF business. One is just sort of rushing to where white space was, whether it was muni bonds or a Vietnam fund and things like that. And then the second phase has more been approaching established asset classes with a somewhat differentiated approach. So our uh, large cap U.S. equity fund, um, MOAT, M-O-A-T, is over $10 billion. You wouldn't think that from Van Eck necessarily, um, but yeah, it's one of our top three f funds and uh, it's, it's done well because it's done, uh, it's beaten the S&P for many years. Um, you know, and so that's, uh, that invests in quality stocks. So I won't go through all our product lineup, but that gives you a flavor of how just within the ETF strategy, we've we've pivoted a little bit. Um, yeah. And actually, I want to give you the super longest answer I can. But uh, in the in now, as we're in the later innings of the ETF industry, yeah. I think it's become more of a distribution game. <laughs> so I'm thinking more and more of what the mutual fund industry was like in the 1990s when you had oh. a lot of competitors. And uh, you had to focus a lot of attention on delivering, uh, communicating with clients, and uh, and doing that in an efficient way using data and all that kind of stuff. Well, I couldn't agree more with you that I think the mutual fund ETF and uh, kind of similarly uh, designed vehicles are distribution businesses far and away. The old adage, you know, build it and they will come, I, th I think, which was... Um, quite successful for a number of proprietors 20, 30 years ago, I think has long been dead. Um, in fact, Rosemont has kind of made it a point over our entire 24 years uh, of investing in firms that really valued sales, marketing, and business leadership, which, as you would know, there's a lot of accidental investment leaders. Um, and so the power of having folks that are very business minded, very savvy about the sales, marketing, positioning, and competitive uh, topics we think is critical. So on that. And, and, and you have to do that. Sorry, just want to interrupt. And, and, and I'm not saying you, anything you don't know, but you have to do that through market cycles. And I think part of that is also doing a good job of setting up expectations, both on the, the, you know, the positive, but also the negative, right? And really shaping where your solution fits to, into a client's portfolio, because if they're not surprised, then they will stick with you usually through, you know, even through periods of tougher performance for either, uh, you know, negative alpha reasons or for just the, the, the cycles of the market. So that would lead me then to my next question, which would be, as you think about where you're going to deploy more resource or perhaps curb your resources, and what products or vehicles 
might come out next, as you've touched on in this podcast. Are you thinking about a combination of the macro environment um, and things like the net flows barometer, <laughs> what's winning uh, and what is gathering assets and what is losing assets? Kind of what's your dashboard for making substantial uh, resource and product decisions? Well, as you pointed out at the top, we're lucky. We're a very different firm than we used to be. And now we have a lot of uh, funds in different asset classes. So coming into a year, uh, we do have, I would call it the luxury of saying, where do we think the markets are going to be? Okay, you can't predict market direction, but you can sort of say, are we in a more income-oriented market or equity-oriented market? And so we actually combine our overall investment outlook. And I'm, and I'm really lucky to be sitting with uh, you know, talented, active investment uh, people, as well as looking at flows. Because, you know, listen, our industry is in a way super simple, Chad. You look over the last 12 months, <laughs> performance, and that's going to define the attitude of where flows are going, right? So that's not a long exercise, but you, no firm, well, no firm, at least Van Eck, is not power, powerful enough to swim upstream. So no. you, you, you don't want to be talking to clients about something they don't care at all about. Right. Now, it's, um, it's one of the challenges of being in the product business and I guess kind of fighting the index, enhanced index, sector uh, specifics and being active, being very niche and being active, um, I think it's just a huge challenge. Strategically, I should have added one thing, which is that a lot of ETFs and mutual funds, obviously, as well, are being consumed within uh, portfolio models, right? Yeah. So, right. Um, you know, the, the, the role of the financial advisor has changed so much, right? It used to be when my dad started selling, uh, you know, mutual funds was an eight and a half percent load sales chart, you know, sales commission fund for smaller oh, tickets. And it's gone from commission orientation to gradually fees, uh, picking funds, still doing the portfolio construction, but picking funds to now uh, really picking models and you know really uh, allocate, you know delegating a lot of that portfolio construction uh, work. So, in, if you will, the client the number of client targets for a firm like Van Eck is shrinking every day, and I think that will continue for the next five years. I would guess you you may have a view on that. No, I, I would agree, and I'd like to ask you specifically about one of your niches, which uh, you know a lot more about than I do. And that's the whole notion of the digital world and Bitcoin. And, you know, you have an offering and, and you've built um, some substantial presence in that area. Why did you think it was important to be in the cryptocurrency uh, or blockchain business? Sure. I spent some time in Silicon Valley as I was in my youth, I'll call it, to try and decide what to do. And so I've always had this idea of disruption in my mind. Um, and then obviously ETF was disruptive to the mutual fund industry. So I'm always looking around my shoulder, if you will, to say what's going to disrupt our business. 
And so I had to sit down in 2017 and look at Bitcoin and say, listen, a lot of people, a lot of the people that used to buy gold mining stocks are now buying Bitcoin. What? And they're saying they're doing it for the same reason in their portfolios. Um, and the demographic profile is really different. And it's not just a niche anymore. Is this something that could compete against gold? Could it disrupt gold? And um, you know, so that's, that was really the reason why it was natural for VanEck to offer some Bitcoin solutions to, to our clients um, because it fits into a lot of the macro factors that we think about anyway. Um, and and there's a, actually, I was going to say there's a client overlap. I'm not sure there is a client overlap because, you know, the young people who own crypto and the, and the kind of more boomers that still buy gold, are, are there's not a huge amount of overlap um, in the demographics, but there, there is in their mentality. So that, that was that was that. And then as far as the application of blockchain to other kinds of solutions, um, I would call that just in the category of growth investments. And I wouldn't say that was imperative for Van Eck to do, but it seemed, you know, to us, it was an opportunity and, and uh, I'm you know, still a believer. And you mentioned a few complementary businesses and product areas that you've added to the quiver, but to my knowledge, the business is still 100% employee-owned. Is that correct? Uh, basically, um, as you know, uh, I had a sibling, a brother who passed away 13 years ago, so I had to buy out his share, and a very small residual is held by, um, by his family. Uh, but, but generally, I would describe our compensation structure as profit share oriented at very much at the business unit level. And um, the history for that was just, you know, if you had an emerging markets growth team, why should their compensation go up and down because of the gold price? And so that extreme segmentation, if you will, um, made a lot of sense for most of the history of the firm. And I guess as long as senior management like myself <laughs> isn't really, you know, oriented one way or the other, right? Sometimes in investment banks, someone's a banker or a trader and, yeah. you know, they, they, you know, they bounce between the personalities. That's, that's not the case at Van Eck. So uh, the, there's a unifying force. So, um, you know, that, that we're second generation. I like to point out there's a lot of second generation firms in our business, uh, or multi-generational. Raymond James, Tom James was a second generation. Franklin, Fidelity, huge giants um, are, are multi-generation, but that's, that doesn't, I don't take that for granted. So succession is going to be a, a big issue for us. Well, as you know, succession and transition is paramount to Rosemont's investing philosophy. And I might take some issue, although I think we could extend this podcast probably another hour talking about the importance of having at some level, every partner rowing the same oars and being aligned by the overall health and well-being of the firm and not being too siloed. I'm not going to mention names, but there are plenty of firms in this business that are effectively clubs of producers in different areas who basically have no relevance. Uh, their pay and, and, and their ultimate uh, value creation doesn't connect well to the you know, net income and valuation of the businesses that they work for. They're just interested in their silo. I don't think that's, you haven't taken it quite to that degree, but that is an issue with getting folks that are kind of just too focused on their own nut. 
in their own business. Uh, absolutely. It's partly the reason I raised it, Chaz, is because one has to re-ask that question regularly. Um, and um, so I, that, that's actually why I mentioned it, because, you know, no, no, you know, no management philosophy should be evergreen, right? You have to see what's going on in, in the business. And uh, I, I totally agree with you. Uh, the, the way we do do, luckily, our ETF business right now is such a large part of what's working. Uh, we don't particularly have that issue, but I'll, I'll recognize that it does exist in the industry. And what complements that topic and exists in the industry is an M&A frenzy, which no doubt you, you have observed. And I'm sure you've had countless numbers of bankers or direct inquiries to buy some or all of VanEck. What has been your feeling about both the kind of massive M&A wave of the last number of years uh, and the importance of keeping Van Eck an employee-led, family-led to some extent, but certainly employee-driven firm without other folks' ulterior motives, which I think is the least understood aspect of the M&A equation when you deal with both strategic and at times financial acquires that put a price on the table and perhaps other benefits sub-advising funds, offering distribution, perhaps centralizing some resources. But at the end of the day, every buyer has motivations and metrics. So I'm curious how you think about the inquiries that you've received and the notion that Van Eck would stay employee-owned you know, for a long time to come. Yeah, I, th I think... Um well, actually, you know, we've, you, I've known you a long time and, and, you know, businesses go through different phases. So there was a time before ETS where my brother and I were interested in selling the firm because we just didn't think we could survive as a mutual fund company. Uh, and if it weren't for 9-11, we probably would have done it. <laughs> so um, that's, uh, you, you know, anyway, so that was that. I guess as the ETF business, uh, you know, became a very high growth for us, uh, there were some really, really smart, uh, you know, private equity or growth equity investors that were interested in, in, in uh, you know, buying part of the equity of the firm. And um, I did spend a lot of time with them because I do value uh, outside uh, advice. Uh, you know, certainly not everything um, is known within the walls of Van Eck. And so um, I, I try to get out as much as possible. But I did we did think about that very seriously. And then the other thing would be partnering overseas. Like if you wanted to enter a country like a Japan or something like that, um, you know, kind of getting a you know, shareholding arrangement like that. The, the problem is that I'm always skeptical about how long <laughs> that kind of arrangement makes sense, right? Japan's really popular one decade, and then it's like, oh my God, you're running away from that situation, right? So um, I, I think otherwise, I just, uh, you know, we just focus on, you know, doing, you know, doing what we're supposed to do when we come to work and not worry so much about valuations. And, um, you know, we haven't talked about it explicitly, but there, it is a great benefit to being a private company with a very long term perspective. Well, that's really what I was getting at. And you made the example of Raymond James, Tom James as a, you know, two 
plus generation firm. But what I think you and I both know is you look at this business broadly, it's very hard to find a two, three plus generation firm of any scale that is still privately held. Dodging Cox, Capital Group, you know, it used to be Standish, Sharon Wood, used to be Scudder, Stevens and Clark, folks that, you know, were names that you and I grew up with. And that's just not the case anymore. You know, everybody uh, at some point, uh, which is obviously a topic that we have studied in depth and thought through, at some point, it doesn't make sense. You don't have the same interest or skill sets and abilities of that next generation. They're not willing to uh, buy even at a attractive internal discount uh, stock from uh, the current owners. And therefore, it becomes a case of, well, how much can we give away through various plans and given valuations on the business that you well know? Not a lot of firms are willing to uh, effectively give away huge amounts of their equity. So then they put in place long-term incentive plans, stock appreciation rights, uh, B shares, C shares, all sorts of plans that effectively act as incentive plans of various types in which employees can earn equity or be granted equity. And I do think that in some situations that works well, but you start to get to a firm of your size and even at a modest, on the modest end of the valuation curve, it would seem to be, and this has been the case for, for so many firms that have been a little bit the victim of their success, it becomes harder and harder for employees to continue to transition the firm internally at even a significant discount to fair market value. And so therefore, you have some of those other firms that I mentioned trading at book value or multiple of book it's just a really interesting subject matter, and, and I don't think it's going to change much. I think that the, the M&A train will keep rolling, and I think that there will be hopefully a lot of good solutions for firms whose kind of employee leadership and abilities and financial wherewithal has run out. But uh, you know, you've, you've watched this for a long time, and that was interesting to think, and I appreciate you sharing you know, how you and uh, your brother Derek thought about the business way back when, but you know, here you are today, 2024. It's impressive. But Chaz, like the way I think about a lot of this stuff and, and look, there are many examples of family companies that have made it through multiple generations, but you have to have the founder mentality of being able to take a big strategic risk because I think the world uh, just changes so much. I mean, the fun aspect of financial services is every day it's a new thing, right? There's there's different news, there's different things happening in the world that are affecting markets and not to mention the industry structure, incentives, technology, and everything that make it so dynamic and fun. But that does mean as a business, you have to be able to pivot. I mean, at some point, ETFs will be passe. I like to say at some point, Bitcoin's going to be super boring. Uh, and it will be. Um, maybe it's boring today, but um, so so you know that that has to be in the governance structure of a business, what, whoever the owners are, in in my mind. And at some point, you're going to have to take a big, you know, a big bet. Well, I, I hear you loud and clear, and I think one thing that you have demonstrated at Van Eck over the last twenty twenty five plus years is your ability or at least your interest in trying to see around corners 
and pivoting when you think it's appropriate. And that's effectively what you just said when, you know, things become either the, the net flow charts <laughs> are working against you, um, distributors, manager research folks, consultants, intermediaries, et cetera, are not in your favor in certain areas. You're looking for the next thing. And I guess one of the challenges will be, can you continue to find uh, areas of current interest and you know to support the business and the people that you've built? It'll be a challenge, but uh, so far, I think you've demonstrated that you're completely up to it. Well, it's a challenge that all, all firms have. So, Chaz, I have a question for you. I think one of the growth areas of the industry that I don't understand very well is uh, the family office, the growth of the family office. I mean, since I um, you know, started in my career, when I was in high school, I went to a high school where they were building a building and they ran out of money halfway through. Um, the 70s were a tough time. And there's been so much wealth created, interest partially because the financial markets have boomed, because interest rates have fallen, et cetera, and technology, uh, you know, fortunes have been made. So it seems like some of the industry is not visible almost in a way. There's family offices, wealth management. What I mean, am I right that there's a big iceberg out there uh, where we only see the tip? And um, what, what, how do you see that evolving over time? Huge. It is a multi-trillion dollar high end of the wealth management family office, both single and multifamily office environment, which is very hard to know well. There are not directories. You know, you and I grew up with the money market directory and the Nelson's directory and all these other ways that we could access um, sources of capital and institutional owners. That's, to my knowledge, still not uh, available. And it's a business of being able to be very specifically connected and figuring out either through referral or through uh, clientele, how do you meet others and how do you prospect? And it actually is interesting, Jan, to that point, there are very few wealth management firms of any size that have successful, dedicated sales and marketing efforts. And in part, I think it's for that reason. A lot of them have uh, senior principals, investment or otherwise, who are adept at navigating that landscape and networking. It's a huge networking game at the end of the day, but suffice to say, there are some very professional such organizations, and then there's some that exist wholly to subsidize first the interests, the family interests, the political interests, the philanthropic interests, et cetera, of the families. And so the ones that I think are more interesting actually for you and for me are the ones that are actually run more as businesses. And that can be SFOs or MFOs, but, you know, it kind of draws to mind, uh, you know, going back and you, you were taking me back now, Jan, 30, 35 years uh, in working for places like Rockefeller and Co and Pitcairn and Bessemer and other what at the time were relatively nascent um, investment businesses uh, that were extensions effectively of those family offices. And some of those 
proved to be family concerns. To, to, so the notion of employee equity or even the notion of tracking stocks or long, long-term incentive plans that allowed employees to share in the value of the business that they helped grow was basically off the table. And we tried it a bunch of times at some of these places and it just kept falling flat on its face because a lot of the family leaders refused to think of their businesses that way. And at the end of the day, those kinds of firms, Jan, you either wear a shareholder hat first or you wear a client hat first. And the key when you're talking to folks like that is to determine which hat they're wearing primarily. So I do think it's a, it's a huge environment. You need to be able to uh, savvily network that uh, environment. It's not easy, uh, but I do think that, you know, compared to what you and I know to be a much more challenging traditional institutional and retail environment, as we've said, you know, flows are much harder to come by. You know, there is too much competition in every space. The notion that, you know, you operate in a space that doesn't have a lot of competition you, know, you could be one of the few people that could say that in some of your offerings, but generally, you know, every area of the investment industry is hyper competitive. So in terms of kind of distribution, it's not really the right word, but in terms of being able to source significant amounts of new capital, it, it, it's a very interesting and uh, significant uh, pools of capital. But again, you got to be able to work with the right people. Are those trillion dollars of wealth going to be run differently in 20 years? I mean, that's a good question, because won't that depend on whether or not they've kind of committed to a significant commercial institutional leadership as opposed to, well, so-and-so from, from the family runs it now, who could be incredibly capable? But then the notion is, as they make decisions, are they decisions that are really serving the interest of a business? Or of a family, those two things are not uh, are, are not uh, necessarily intertwined. Yeah, they're life, no. lifestyle businesses. <laughs> uh, and you've gone a long way from your dad's very capable lifestyle business to the business that Vanek is today. So, good. Well, that was interesting. Thanks, <laughs> Jan. This was a pleasure. I appreciate you joining me on the podcast today. Oh, thank you, Chaz. It's uh, I, I really appreciate your perspective on the markets, um, both from the you know the kind of long term uh, perspective on growing businesses, but also just your knowledge of how this business operates. So, thank you for the time. Thank you.